You are listening to the Business Society Podcast, formerly known as Think Like a CFO. The Business Society is a podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners, where we talk all about what it means to be an entrepreneur and manage the money in your business and personal life. I'm your host, Melissa Houston, and I am a CPA with over 20 years of experience working with entrepreneurs just like you. And I am here to share my knowledge and love of all things business. Check out my blog at thebusinesssociety.co and make sure you check out my articles at Forbes.com. Kurt Mueller's passion lies in helping others for their financial future and develop into tomorrow's leaders. He considers himself a go-giver and is passionate about giving back to the community that has welcomed him with open arms. A personal financial expert and financial advisor, I am excited to speak with Kurt today about managing your personal finances. Hey, Kurt, how are you? Welcome to the Think Like a CFO podcast. I am doing well, and thanks so much for having me on. Very excited to talk all things finance today. Every time I get a guest that that majors in finance, it just makes me so happy. I could talk about finance forever. And, you know, (laughs) as long as I've got somebody here so I don't get too boring and too technical, it probably make the show a lot smoother and more interesting for everyone. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we have a a, a shared passion in finance for sure. Absolutely, because you're a certified financial planner. Yeah. So if you want to share with us a little bit about what you do as a certified financial planner, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. So the short answer is, is I help business owners and entrepreneurs make the complex simple. Now, <laughs> and it's very complex. <laughs> it, it can, as you know, it can be extremely yeah. complex. But the the more, I guess, to, to dive a little bit deeper there, it's it's more about you know helping those business owners and entrepreneurs make sense of all the things that are in their financial world, from you know tax mitigation strategies to retirement strategies to insurance strategies. I mean, there's just so many things that encompass financial planning. And frankly, as you know, from a tax and accounting side, it can be extremely overwhelming. Extremely overwhelming and complicated. So it's great to have somebody of your profession to be there to help navigate people through, you know, all the the craziness of the financial world. Now, I love that you mentioned insurance and, you know, tax planning and retirement planning. Thank you. I'm getting too old or my mind's just filled with too much information. (laughs) But I really love that you mentioned that because as I really try to talk to clients about is when you're doing a personal financial plan, it includes so much more than just managing money in, you know, your investment portfolio. You really need to be aware of the holes that you have in your insurance policies, plan for your retirement, know what your saving goals are. You know, there's just so many factors to consider. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Absolutely. I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is awareness, being more aware of what's going on in your wealth building and financial planning picture. And what I mean by that is being cognizant of major expenses, especially if you're in business, if you're you know a startup, an entrepreneur, or even a seasoned business owner, just making yourself and becoming more aware of those 
expenses that you can plan for, because we often know that you can't plan for everything in life. Life has a funny way of throwing a curveball at you from time to time. But I think it's it's creating that awareness that will ultimately build a very solid foundation so that you can start building very good sound habits from a financial planning standpoint. I think that's the biggest key here. Don't get so lost in the strategies and the technical terms and the, you know, all of the various charts and graphs and industry jargon. I think it's more important to just simply be aware of what's going on in your financial world because ultimately that's going to help and influence your decisions. And I believe over time, that'll make your decision making very much improved. Absolutely. Now, one thing comes to mind when you're speaking to that is, you know, quite often I find people compare their financial plans to other like friends or neighbors or whoever, the plan that they have in place. And I always stress to people that, you know, your financial plan is extremely unique. So what works for one person would not necessarily work for another. Would you agree with that? 110%. Yes. No two plans are are ever alike. And I think even just taking a step back, I mean, really, if I know it's easier said than done, especially in the age of social media, but if you can just stop yourself from comparing to other people in general, I think that's really, really going to be beneficial and helpful long-term. Plus it's going to decrease the amount of stress in your life because Here's what I've found, you know, I've been I've been helping and serving in the financial planning realm for over over 9 years now and what I have found it's pretty interesting is most of the time when someone is is flaunting their wealth, right? I call it the the social media effect, right? They're they're very rich, they're very wealthy on social media. So yep. when someone is flaunting their wealth, oftentimes I've found that in reality they don't have much of anything. I know. And the people that are much more subdued and much more conservative and much more down to earth have millions. Yep. (laughs) I know it's so surprising. So I think that's a big, big key is just in general, I would, I would, I would try your best to, to stop comparing yourself in general. But to your point, every, everyone's plan is different because everyone has a different outlook and philosophy on life. And it's so interesting that you you bring up that topic. And I love that you did because, you know, one thing I noticed, especially in my earlier years when I first started, you know, working in accounting and, and I was doing tax returns for people, you know, the personal tax returns. And I would see the, the clients coming through the door and I would think, okay, they've got a certain amount of wealth because they look a certain way. And I would just basically judge people on that because I had no experience. And what I realized is the most conservative people, like you said, have millions of dollars stashed away. They have completely different lifestyles. There's no flash to it. And they don't brag about it. They're just building their wealth quietly and they're very comfortable in their lives, which is what I, you know, at an early age realized that's exactly what I wanted to work towards because to me that makes sense. And then you get your money working for you instead of you constantly having to work to pay off debt. Exactly. So do you want to explain to people what it means to have your money working for you? Yes. I mean, I think it, in general, you know, a lot of, you know, you, you mentioned something early on as when we first started that, you know, financial planning is not just about 
you know, investment management or portfolio management. And I would say the same can be said when it, when you talk about making your money work for you, you know, don't be fooled into thinking that making your money work just means that you go invested in the stock market. It could mean that it could also mean investing in real estate. It could mean investing in, in startup companies. It could mean investing in oil and gas. I mean, it could mean a lot of different things. And so I think. The, just from a broad sense, when we talk about helping or having your money work for you, to me, that means that, hey, keep your debt as low as possible. You know, only take on what I would consider good debt. You know, that is debt that's collateralized debt or secured debt. And keep that as low as possible so that you're not working yourself to just basically pay it off because the interest is just eating you alive. So I think that that in general, to me, that's what it means is, hey, make sure your debt is not out of line, number one. And secondly, don't have too much cash, right? Obviously, you know, I think it's important to have the three to six months worth of living expenses as an emergency or rainy day fund, certainly. But over and above that, perhaps you might actually be losing money if you if you have thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands in cash just sitting on the sidelines, so to speak, and getting eroded by inflation. So that's to me how how I define that term. And I love that you use that example. And I did recently hear a story of a woman who had $2 million sitting in her bank account. Now, can you explain in more simpler terms what it means to have a large amount of cash sitting in a bank account that's earning little to no interest versus actually doing something with it? Absolutely. And there's two sides to this to consider. There's the logical, technical side of it, and then there's the emotional human side of it. So I think that's important to, to, to make those two distinctions. From an emotional or a human side of it, someone that has that amount of cash, there, there's, there's a reason for that, whether it be a childhood experience or whatever it may be, but there's a reason that they find comfort in having that much cash. And so one of the first questions I would ask if I was talking to someone that had $2 million in cash is I would ask them, you know, what about that is important to you? How does that provide you a level of comfort, a level of security and really get down to how they think and what their philosophy is? Because that's really, really important. And I say that because if I only focus on the technical or the logical side of it, right? And I go in and say, well, inflation's been at 1.7% a year. And over the last 10 years, this is our average. This is what the US dollar is right now, et cetera, et cetera. And I start throwing all these, you know, facts, right? They can't be disputed. They are facts. If I start throwing all those facts and show charts and graphs and numbers and projections, oftentimes that that message, although it's a good message, is not going to be very well received because the delivery was all wrong. Because I, I, I was, I was going in and I was combating, for lack of a better term, I was combating an emotional response with a logical one. 99% of the time does not work. It ultimately boils down to why that individual feels strongly to have that cash, what kind of experiences they have had. And then as a planner, right, as an advisor, just like yourself, you know, advising clients in the financial realm, it's our job to help them figure the answer out in terms of why they shouldn't have that much in cash, right? Because if it's there, if, if, if they are the ones that are figuring it out, it's, it's much different than if we are 
we are telling them as to why they shouldn't have that much cash. It's our job, in my opinion, as as you know, servant leaders to guide them along that path to help them come to their own conclusion. Now, to be clear, that conclusion might be, I still want to keep $2 million of cash. And that's okay. It's our job, though, as, as again, servant leaders to really understand why they have that. And then to illustrate, okay, well, if you keep this in that current state, here's what, here's some of the risk associated with that. And they need to be comfortable with that risk. And then the alternative is if you invest it into something, you know, more secure, you know, talking about their risk levels, you know, if they're more of a conservative, low risk person versus high risk. I mean, I know it gets complicated and you have to figure out somebody's risk level tolerance, but would you explain to them, like, you know, if, if you just even conservatively low risk put this money into this type of investment, then this is how much your money can make and work for you rather than losing it to, you know, the power of inflation. That you're, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, that is, that is ultimately it's helping them understand what the alternatives are and educating them to the point where they feel comfortable with that. I think, you know, a lot of times when there is an emotional response like that, in this scenario, we're talking about someone that has two million or more in cash, probably a very emotional thing. So figuring out, A, like I said, where that comes from is, is first and foremost, but then B, it's figuring out, okay, well, what do you know about alternatives? You know, what do you know about other places you can put your money? And likely what they will say is they probably don't know much. And so it's, it's very common, and I'm sure you run into this too, that in the absence of knowledge, in the absence of understanding something, most people will tend to err on the side of caution and just say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I know my money's safe in the bank. I'm not going to do that. And so in that instance, it's it's really asking great questions and it's really getting down to understanding their risk tolerance. And I think too, it's important not to make those assumptions. You know, you talked about earlier in your career where you would see people come in and you would you would make an assumption based on their appearance. I think it's it's as important in this scenario too to not assume that, you know, just some just because someone is older in age that they are risk averse or just because someone is younger that they, you know, want to throw caution to the wind. That's where as servant leaders and advisors like us, we need to ask those good questions to really help them figure out, okay, why do you feel this way? Let me educate you on some alternatives. And ultimately, I think over time, as they begin to understand those strategies, how they work, the advantages and disadvantages, they become more comfortable with it. And I think over time, you know, they're much more receptive to changing what they're doing. But most people that have that amount of cash are simply doing that because they don't know any different. But that's that's what they know. Absolutely. And what I love most about what you've said so far is that you recognize the emotion that's tied to the money. And so many finance professionals that I've worked with throughout my career and throughout my lifetime, you know, whether it be a personal client, like being a personal client or, you know, working with them in a working relationship, what have you. So many professionals do not address the fact that money is the most emotionally charged topic there is. It, there, there's no, no truer statement I don't, has ever been said. And it took, yeah. you know what? Candidly, it took me quite a while in my career to really understand the emotional side of it. I, I made countless mistakes early on, just, you know, only focusing on the technical and, and making sure I knew all the ins and outs, but but not really focusing on the underlying reasons why different people thought the way they did 
about money, but it is, you're right. It is extremely emotional. And really, when you think about it, just as a, as a species, as, as human beings, unfortunately, we're flat out not wired that well to handle money. <laughs> I mean, we're just, we're just, we're just not. Now, some people are better than others, but I just think in general, we're just not, we're just not that well. We're not, we're not wired that well to handle mm-hmm. money. Exactly. I mean, I have a whole load of opinions on that one. And I'm just going to not go down that rabbit hole because we would be here for hours and hours talking about it. What I do want to talk to you about, pick your your brain, because I know your expertise is in, you know, some of what's going on in the States and new tax laws that are being implemented and stuff. Do you have any comments that you want to make around those? So I think in, in general, so there was an article last week, late last week that came out from Bloomberg that talked about some of the various intricacies of the Biden administration's proposed tax reform. Now, to be clear, this is all proposed at this point, And the reality of it is what is actually proposed versus what actually gets passed mm-hmm. usually is very different. So I always like to be clear on that. But <laughs> yeah. what what is on the table as it relates to the capital gains uh, tax rate is, you know, there's a proposal out there to raise the capital gains tax rate to 43.4%, which the market didn't receive very well. <laughs> they had a very negative uh, reaction to that. But I think bigger picture wise, it illustrates a very important point, And that is the focus at the federal level in Washington, D.C. is starting to shift away from the stimulus and economic recovery in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's shifting towards more infrastructure and social agendas. And when that happens, then from a headline standpoint, the newspaper, the Wall Street Journal and the newspaper headlines have a much stronger bearing on market sentiment on a day-to-day basis. And so just because something is proposed doesn't necessarily mean it's actually going to get passed. In fact, I, I think it's unlikely we will see capital gains tax rates that high. But at the end of the day, you know, if we've got an infrastructure component to this proposed legislation and then a social agenda component to that, those have to be paid from somewhere. And right now what's on the table is the the infrastructure component is to be paid by increasing corporate taxes. And the social agenda component is to be paid by increasing personal taxes. So the chances that we see some changes in the current state of, of taxes and tax law in the United States, I, I think is reasonable to expect we're going to see some changes. However, like I said, that doesn't mean that people should be going out and making long-term financial planning decision based on proposed legislation. I just want to be clear on that because I have, I've gotten several, well, not several, but more than several calls about that and whether or not people should make any changes. And my answer has been the same. And that is no, don't, don't make changes based on proposed legislations. That's, that's not a good long-term strategy. And it's a bit of an emotional reaction too, right? There it is. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, Warren Buffett said it best. Well, he said a lot of things really well. One of the things that I love that he said is he said, if you're not willing to own a stock for 10 years, don't even think about owning it for 10 minutes. His point there is, you know, view this as a long-term deal. This is not a, hey, let's buy or sell the the headlines on a daily basis. So can you explain to listeners maybe, you know, the state of the market right now and if it's a good time to, okay, first of all, maybe we should explain a little bit about what the market is and if it's a good time to invest in any stocks at this point or not. Sure. So when when you hear, for your listeners, when you hear people talk about the market, right, they talk about the market, 
typically they're they're talking specifically about the S and P five hundred, which is actually technically speaking made up of five hundred and two companies, and it's and it's made up of the of the five hundred and two largest U.S. publicly traded companies, and so. Of course, Tesla made a big splash earlier this year by entering the S&P 500. And typically based on market cap size, we will see, you know, the bottom 5% fall out on an annual basis to be replaced with companies that are, that are growing in size, et cetera. So when you hear people talk about the market, generally speaking, they're talking about the S&P 500. And that's important to know because that is different than the NASDAQ, that's different than the Russell 2000, that's different than the Dow Jones. And so that's really important to, to distinguish between the two. And we could spend hours talking about that. I won't. <laughs> um, but to answer your question in terms of is now a good time, I would say this, generally speaking, no, because I believe personally that the majority of these valuations that we're seeing right now, particularly in the growth sector, i.e. big tech, I call them the FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. The numbers that we're seeing are insanely high. The market is very stretched right now. And when a market is as stretched as it is at the moment, and to put it in perspective, the S&P is trading at almost 22x, meaning 22, 22x is, is a multiple that we talk about when, it, when we talk about earnings per share. Generally speaking, it's trading anywhere between 16, 18, maybe 20x. So we're 22x right now, which is historically high. So I think these valuations are very high. I think the market is stretched at the moment, which in general leads to short-term volatility. And what I mean by that is anytime we see mixed headlines, you know, a resurgence in COVID, J&J vaccine that gets suspended, tax reform, anytime we see these headlines in a very stretched market, you're going to see that that short-term volatility. Now, does that mean that there aren't potential, you know, good opportunities out there? No, I think there absolutely could be some good potential opportunities out there, especially when you talk when you look at what I would consider like the value value or cyclical sector. So, in just, you know, the sectors like, you know, leisure, travel, hotels, airlines, those industries that are going to make a resurgence as as the global economy reopens in the wake of the pandemic think about you know those types of industries that are going to benefit from that and let's face it there's a huge pent up demand right now globally to travel to spend money on leisure to go out to eat retail i think is going to make a comeback so all of those industries would be ones that you know i would consider looking at and it can be overwhelming Right. It, it can be very overwhelming. And so one thing uh, that is, is I like to keep things simple. And one thing to consider is to look at the various sector ETFs. They call them spider sector ETFs. So you can, you can invest in the financial sector or in the energy sector or in the leisure sector versus trying to go in and pick your own stocks. That's super interesting. Now, I'm curious also, as a certified financial planner, do you sell products yourself? I do. So a little bit of context about me. I started actually my career on the life insurance side. And so I learned that side of the business first. And so I've maintained 
you know, my, my insurance license throughout my career. And so if I, you know, for example, if I make insurance recommendations as it relates to a plan, then technically that would be me, you know, selling an insurance, an insurance policy. Now on the investment side, it's a lot different because I am a, a fiduciary. So legally I can't, I can't accept commissions on investment products, which means we don't do any you know, front-end loaded mutual funds or anything like that. It's all what we consider fee-based or advisory, right? We're paid a, a quarterly fee based on assets under management. But broadly speaking, I, I do help with both the, the planning component, which is important, but also the implementation of it. That's equally important as well. Perfect. So if you had any sort of piece of advice that you really want listeners to take away with them today, what would that be? Take ownership. Take ownership in your financial future. Nobody's going to take more ownership in your financial future than you. And if they are, then there's a big problem. So take ownership, educate yourself, and be real with yourself, right? Oftentimes, I hear people say things like, well, you know, I'd love to get my financial house in order but, and then there's, you know, a, a grocery list of excuses. It's not the right time. The kids are in school, whatever, fill in the blank, but be real with yourself and really take a hard look in the mirror. And oftentimes when you do that, you will, you will find that you are spending money in areas that you don't need to be spending money in. Reining that in and going back to awareness, what we talked about earlier, being aware of what you're spending is so, so important. That's half the battle. But again, to, to answer your question, I think it's taking ownership, right? There's so many resources out there to be able to go educate yourself and just be a, just be a better financial steward uh, about it. You know, there, the, the financial industry doesn't have proprietary information anymore. In the age of the internet, it's all, you can find whatever you want. And so I just think it's, it's so, so important that People just take ownership and they and they find the time or make the time to be, to become better financial stewards. Now, at some point, you'll get to a level where it's just not practical for you to manage all of it anymore. You know, whether it be you know your business is growing, you've hired more employees, whatever whatever the case may be. And so, I think at that point, then it then it's you know decision. Okay, I need to go find uh, a professional to to help me with this because I want to. I want to actually be able to see my family and have fun. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Like, I believe that everybody should take some ownership and be financially literate and educated in this. Do you have any books that you or maybe websites or anything that you would recommend for people to start taking the time to learn, you know, a little bit each day? Any sort of recommendations that you want listeners to take away with? Yes. So the first one I would say just in, in general would be, it's, it's called The Go-Giver by Bob Berg. It is not a financial book. It this is a book about life. This is the second life. time I've heard about that book today. Oh, it's a phenomenal. It's a phenomenal and I've never book. heard of it. Okay. Okay. Phenomenal book. It's a book about life, but I think it, it, it translates very well across all aspects of life. So that would be the, the, the first book that I think would be you know, very relevant for someone to read to start out with. And then the, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue at the moment. It's called Mindful Money. Mindful it's actually money. written like by that. Jonathan DeYo. He's a financial uh, advisor out in California that I was connected with and I bought his book. And it's, it's just, it's a very different approach to managing your money, managing your financial plan. It, it talks a lot about the behavioral side and just the mindset that it takes. So I think those two 
are phenomenal books, very easy reads, and they're not technical. Fantastic. I love those recommendations. So if listeners want to reach out and get a hold of you, how can they find you? So they can find me on every major social media platform, (laughs) on Instagram, at Finance Architect, Facebook, of course. And they can also check out my my podcast website, which is flip, F-L-I-P hyphen podcast.com. Awesome. And I will leave all the links in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Kurt. I've had a pleasure talking with you and I hope to see you back. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And this was, this was awesome. Thanks for listening to the Business Society Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with someone you think would love it. Until next time, I'm Melissa Houston. And never forget, nobody will ever care about your money as much as you do. So never give your financial power away. Mm